Hiya, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. It's a cold grey day at the end of April, but the swans have hatched. So in our local park every year, there's a pair of swans which um, bring forth a absolutely gorgeous collection of cygnets, as baby swans are called. And uh, they came out last night. I saw it on Twitter, so I just headed up to the park and everybody's videoing them like mad. Cute little bundles of fluff. And we'll go up there every day to see check that nothing's eaten them overnight because it's pretty it's pretty vicious out there in the parks of London. Um, but they are very gorgeous. Five of them are paddling around in the pool. So that put me in a good mood. And it's the kind of start of summer now, I think, even though it's cold. So that's good. Right, on with the show. Um, first post of the week was links I liked. Um, and I actually used it to say goodbye to somebody from Oxfam who's just retired, Richard English who is one of those amazing Oxfam people who may not get a lot of um, profile, doesn't do a lot of grandstanding, doesn't sort of um, blow his own trumpet like others, like me perhaps, do. Um, very self-effacing. And what he's been is an absolute um, uh, uh, guide to generation after generation of activists. He's done a fantastic training program uh, called the uh, Campaigns and Advocacy Leadership Programme for about 300 Oxfam staff. He turned it into a great guide, which I've linked to on the blog, um, which is the kind of best thinking on how we prepare campaigners. Um, and he was always incredibly supportive and helpful to me when I came with all my requests for ideas and contacts and things. So um, do have a look at the guide. Sorry to lose you, Richard. Um, I hope you stay in touch. Um, another thing I put on the links I liked is just a rather sweet. Um, it's 28 years ago since the World Wide Web was born. It's hard to imagine life without it, especially during COVID. But it's April 1993 that it came into being. Uh, and it began as a project at CERN, uh, the, the nuclear research agency um, in Switzerland, I think, called Inquire, initiated by Tim Berners-Lee, a British scientist. And they've got a picture of the first memo he wrote about it where he proposed the World Wide Web in 1989. And there's a lovely little comment from his boss in a circle saying, vague but exciting. So there we go. That's how probably the biggest technological transformation of the last um, half century was greeted. Vague but exciting. Right, <clears throat> second post of the week was one which has been, I've been thinking about for a while now, which is internal advocacy. So a lot of people in the aid sector put a lot of energy into trying to change their own organisations. They try and get them to do different things, behave differently, aid to, me to, um, decolonisation, but, you know, adopt particular policies, do more on inequality, do more on climate change. Ever since I've been in the NGO sector, people have been lobbying internally. And that's how the sector develops. It's a kind of very important part of the evolution, is this internal conversation. But what's interesting, and a lot of that comes from the bottom, it comes from people in the aid agency, not necessarily the bosses. Now, if the bosses want to change an aid agency or any other organisation, there's loads to read. There's management, books galore, guides, you know, how do you change organisational culture, lots of case studies. Remarkably little has been written about what happens if the foot soldiers want to change the organisation, if the people, if just the normal non-management people want to change the organisation. So I put out a tweet about this and it was really interesting because people, lots of people wrote back and said, oh, I could tell you some stories, but I'm never going to write them down. Far too dangerous. Um, and that maybe explains why there's so little written. What I 
did find was almost all about gender and gender mainstreaming and some really useful stuff. So um, one of the things I've noticed, though, is that when people get involved in internal advocacy, they seem to get angrier. So when they're dealing with the government or private sector, they can be quite dispassionate, quite cold-blooded, say, well, we've got to understand their incentives. We've got to understand you know, how they get promoted, how they, get a, uh, how they advance their careers and work with that and work with the grain and all these kind of quite sort of, um, uh, as I say, cold-blooded ways of looking at things. But when they want to change their own organisation, they just get really angry, they cry, they shout, they kind of, they don't see why they should need to do all that stuff internally because our organisations are good and they should do what I want. Um, and so I suppose my basic point is that doesn't work. You know, that you've got to think about incentives, coalitions, narratives, all the critical junctures, all the things you'll think about when you're trying to change a law or what a government is doing apply equally well to your own institution. You need to think about it in that way. Um, but some of the stuff I got from the, the, the things I read and went back and read some of these things about gender mainstreaming, the importance of building and maintaining internal change coalitions. And those change coalitions have to bring together both the bosses and the bossed and, and the people at the bottom. You need this internal form of insider-outsider coalition, if you like, um, to drive change. You need to invest in both people's agency, building power with, getting people organised, getting them together, but also create jobs to institutionalise the change you're trying to bring about. So you know, once you've got somebody whose job is to mainstream gender, then, you've got to, then it's much easier to keep the momentum going than if it's just a kind of voluntary initiative which can peak and then fade. The resistance is often passive. Uh, so it's not that people say, no, no, we will never mainstream gender. It's just that they just don't do much or they just are say, yes, yes, very good. We just need some more information, all these things. So there's lots of tactics of delay. Um, really interesting discussion, very sort of two-edged discussion on the importance of framing. So, you know, the way that um, they achieved a breakthrough on gender at Gates, one of the case studies on the Gates Foundation, was when an expert, Catherine Bertini, said to a new incoming boss, a critical junction, new boss looking for ideas, that if you don't consider gender, you would waste a lot of money quickly. So Bertini sold, and she ended up working at Gates, Bertini sold gender to Gates on the basis of efficiency. And gender activists are kind of really torn about that because on the one hand, they, they, it shouldn't need to be. You do it because it's the right thing. But on the other hand, it really works. Remy Kaup from Watery got in touch and sent me a few ideas. Organise lunchtime talks and webinars. Even if not many people come, they, they, they give the topic visibility. People will get the emails announcing the webinar. It becomes a legitimate thing. You know, so it's like creating a little Overton window, if you like, uh, within your organisation. Feed people's curiosity. Don't tell people. Stimulate their curiosity. Um, find some gaps in knowledge. You know, don't lecture. Don't harangue. Um, People in more senior positions have to feel like it was their idea all along. And I think this is really difficult because activists kind of feel proud of their ideas and they want, yeah, their, they want to be associated with their ideas, but actually that can work against you. And often it's much better if you slip a com, uh, an idea into a conversation and then say, wow, what a great idea you just had. And that's the way to get the boss or the government minister or whoever to, you know, to really run with it. Uh, I did this once. It was really impressive. I, I was trying, I was working with a friend of mine at Save the Children to get some funding for a book on Latin America, on children in Latin America. And I watched her 
convince her boss, who had the budget, that the idea of a book on children in Latin America was his. And he just swallowed it and we got the money. And I just thought, wow, that is how you work internally. Um, don't copy bosses in emails. That's just a form of you know, a microaggression. It doesn't build trust. Um, uh, it's not a good way to get, win people over to your side. Other things I've noticed from Oxfam, I mean, maybe, yeah, I think it's true. Generally, money talks. You know, if you can get a bit of money behind an issue, people are much more willing to let it go, uh, to, to let you run with it. So I got some funding from the Australian government for How Change Happens, for doing the book. And suddenly Oxfam was going, yes, great. Yeah, go ahead. Off you go. Think about the messenger, not the message. Who is, if you're trying to convince a certain tier of bosses, Will they believe it if they hear it from a private sector speaker? You know, the McKinsey's person who comes and gives the staff talk. Will they believe it if they hear it from a donor? Um, they will often believe it more if it comes from someone outside the organisation. Sad but true. So think about the messenger, not the message. And you will have to be stubborn and persistent. The really good change agents in Oxfam are, have skin as thick as a rhinoceros. I'm not mentioning any names, but you know who you are. Um, and they will just keep going, ignore the, the setbacks and keep going. And then, of course, there's always that saying, which I could, couldn't source. I thought it was Mandela, but I, I couldn't find it. They say no until they say yes. And that's the thing to remember when the going gets hard. Third post of the week. What do we know about COVID-related innovation in poor countries? And should aid agencies get involved? So this is Ben Ramallingham and Ben Kumpf have written a, uh, a paper for the OECD looking at the kinds of innovation that have happened around COVID in, poor, in low and middle income countries. So I'll just read a little bit of the kind of examples they give. So problem, a health official in a large city in India is tasked with sourcing quality masks for hospitals dealing with COVID-19 cases across the city. Supply chains and manufacturing have shut down and there are very few organisations with practical experience of how to do such work. Who can help? Solution. The official finds online videos of a maker group based in Mumbai that is repurposing its facilities to produce quality masks quickly and is part of a global network of maker spaces. The official puts in a request, as do some hospitals, and within a few weeks there is a national network of makers responding to such requests and producing over one million masks. Well, OK, that was an, an old piece of... That's an old story. Things in India are so bad now. It's absolutely dominated the news this week. Um, and you need a lot more than one million masks. But anyway, this was the example that um, uh, the two Bens gave. Um, another problem. Um, a Nairobi bus fleet owner is working on the process of contact tracing for one of the most mobile populations in the world, where over 50% of people use public transport every day. How can this be achieved? Solution. The fleet owner gets all its public drivers and operators to sign up to a Kenya-developed app called M-Safari using their vehicle registration numbers. All passengers then upload their details onto the app, which is used to trace future cases and clusters, trigger automated warnings to passengers exposed to known cases, and also to set and monitor the maximum safe number of passengers allowed on each vehicle. After an initial pilot, the government of Kenya is looking at wider legislative changes around the co collection and use of public transportation information. Really interesting, way ahead of what's happening in the UK. <clears throat> now, what they then go on to sort of the analysis of a wider range of case studies, and what they find is that innovation often bears little resemblance to that old kind of, in a sense, tech white saviour fantasy of tech transfer, where we take tech from the rich endowed countries and we share it benevolently with the poor, poor ones. 
What actually happens is that innovators have worked to take existing technologies, tools or techniques and strip out features that are seen as surplus to requirement. And it's a process of radical simplification, which is really in contrast to the over-engineering of new products and services that takes place in, in many uh, developed countries and in many parts of the aid system. Really interesting. And they then sort of said, came up with a load of recommendations for what aid agencies can do to support innovation. I'm not sure they should, firstly, because I think um, the aid agencies arriving with a big checkbook may well have a negative impact on innovation rather than a positive impact. But also, there's no theory of change. And this happens, yeah, I read a lot of papers saying, you know, people need to do this, people need to do that, governments need to do this, aid agencies need to do that. They almost, and they always have a big two pages of recommendations at the end. You know, the IMF must do X. There's never a theory of change. There's never a theory of action. A, 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 there ought to be a new section which sets out, and how would this be achieved? You know, um, who are the blockers? Who are the drivers of this change? Who are the likely allies? What coalitions can you imagine? What are the moments of change? When is there going to be a, an opportunity to do this? A change of, the, of leadership or an election or something like that? Um, and what are the narratives? How, yeah, going back to that, that point on, on uh, selling gender in Gates, what's the narrative, the framing of this issue, which is most likely to win over the people we want to make the decisions? It doesn't exist. You never see it in papers. It ought to be obligatory. Otherwise, why are we reading this stuff? So uh, I had a bit of a rant on that one. Final post of the week. Um, I'm doing a series of posts for the uh, Africa Centre blog at the LSE. I've gone and talked to a bunch of their researchers who've had impact of different kinds with their research. And I'm just doing it as a series of case studies of how does research have impact? You never really know. It's always quite, you know, um, random and unpredictable, but it's really interesting when it happens. This last one was some work on, by Anna MacDonald and Cara Blackmore on the dynamics of return and reintegration of refugees in Uganda, sort of, uh, who were driven out by the war, by the Lord's Resistance Army, they then came back, and it wasn't easy. So, you know, first thing is, return is not straightforward. Um, you know, the, the, uh, you, it's not that everybody comes back and then everything's great. The research found that in Uganda, for example, if you were a former combatant who had committed atrocities, as long as you are economically, economically productive and respectful and well-behaved back home, people may well accept you back. On the other hand, if you're a woman who was abducted by the rebel group and has now returned from the bush, perhaps with children, in the eyes of the international community, you might be regarded as a traumatised victim. But across communities where we conducted our research, you may be perceived to pose a real threat, possessed by spirits, for example, in a way that is seen as contagious. So in terms of social reintegration, often it is not so much what you did during the conflict as how you behave in the present. That was really interesting. But then what, was, yeah, what, what I wrote about in terms of the impact was they didn't then just publish the paper and do some seminars. They, did a, they set up a series of artistic collaborations with illustrators and conceptual artists from the region got cartoonists in to illustrate papers. Um, they got you know, created fictional characters, um, telling stylized stories with different social issues of return in Uganda, South Sudan, Central African Republic, and the Congo. Uh, invited three artists from the region to spend some months undertaking their own avenues of inquiry. And in the end, you got this fantastically rich set of drawings, paintings, cartoons, which they could put up in, in exhibitions and appealed to a much wider range of people than academics, including the women who were actually involved, um, who then came to see this and said, yes, 
that's us or no, we don't want our picture in this or whatever, actually got involved in the research in a way they would never normally do. So really interesting stuff. I've got a bunch more of those posts, which I'll talk about in, in the weeks to come. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the summer. If you have some baby swans or coots or moorhens or ducks, enjoy those too. Talk to you next week.